Welcome to those of you visiting, a number of you in town visiting family and friends. We're glad that you're here. We have a children's ministry today, if your kids would like to do that. The 8 to 10-year-olds are heading up to the corner over here, or they can stay in here. Either way, whatever you prefer. I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 this morning. 1 John chapter 4, it's not always that our regular verse-by-verse work through a Bible book would be continued on Christmas Day. Sometimes I'll kind of pull the car over and grab a different passage uh, reflecting on the incarnation, but as we've been going through the book of 1 John, we come to a passage that makes a little bit of sense to why Jesus came, what He came to do, and I thought we'd stay in the verse-by-verse narrative and look at this on this morning. Hope that's okay with you. Uh, If it's not, sorry, here we go. (laughs) 1 John 4, 13 to 21 is our passage. And before I read the passage, uh, we are going through this book of 1 John, and we've called this book Assured Child of God. This is a book written by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul, meant to give believers a certain rest for their heart, a certain assurance that they are children of God. And throughout the book, Judgment Day is mentioned. And John writes to tell the children of God that they don't need to fear Judgment Day. They can be confident with where they stand because of what God's done in them. He has borne them. He has given them a new birth. They've been born again. They're His children. Therefore, they're safe. They're His. They're protected. They're loved. And so this book is a great gift to the Christian church. And my prayer is that as we look at it today with thoughts of the incarnation in our mind, that the Lord would help make sense of it all the more to us to give our hearts rest. So 1 John 4, 13 to 21 reads as follows. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I've entitled this message, Confidence Before the Savior and Judge of the World. Confidence Before the Savior and Judge of the World. Jesus being the Savior of the world is mentioned in verse 14 of this passage. The judgment that's coming to the world is mentioned in verse 17. So it's good for us to think of both, salvation that He came to offer and the coming judgment day. So often in, in the days around Christmas, we think of the first coming of Christ, rightly so. Advent weeks were designed by Christians to help not just reflect on the first coming, though, but to look forward to the second coming. So it's very appropriate that we'd have a passage this morning that would deal with both both the first coming and the second coming. Jesus is meant to be introduced to all of the world. This is a child that was born that was not meant to be known just to his friends and family in Nazareth, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. And as Pastor Jason said earlier, to the world throughout human history. Jesus is meant to be known to everyone. Jesus was born, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose again, 
ascended to heaven where he intercedes for us and is coming again. And as he was interceding to heaven right before he went to heaven, he told his disciples, told his followers, make the message of me known everywhere. This is not a birth that's meant to be just for a few. This is a life that's meant to be embraced by everyone, all of us. So I think it's appropriate at this time for all of us to ask ourselves, what is my relationship with Jesus Christ? Not, I'm visiting friends over the holidays, what's their relationship with Jesus? What is my relationship with Jesus? He came as a child born in a manger. He'll come a second time, the Scripture tells us, on a white horse as a as a conquering king. It's good for us to know the full intended, the full life of Jesus Christ. He came to save His people from their sins. And for those who will not turn to Him in repentance and faith, He comes to judge in the future. He came among the blood of His mother in the first coming. He'll come with the blood of His enemies splattered on him in the second coming. This is the full teaching of who Jesus is, why he came. He came to save his people, and for those who would not be saved by him, who would refuse to bow the knee to him, he comes to judge. And so John writes, because fearing that judgment does not need to happen. And perish the thought that a child of God, a Christian, a Christ follower, would fear the second coming. You read throughout the New Testament, read the Old Testament, the prophecies about the second coming. They're not designed to make the people of God fear. They're meant to make His enemies fear, but they're meant to comfort the people of God. When He comes again, He will bring His people home. No need to fear. This passage before us is an encouragement to Christians. We prayed just a little bit ago as elders, and one of the things we prayed about was that every single Christ follower in this room would walk out of here with their hearts at rest when thinking of the second coming of Christ. We can be confident when Christ returns for His own. Why can we be so confident? How can we be so confident? Well, the passage gives us two reasons. Two reasons for confidence before the Savior and judge of the world. Two reasons for confidence before the Savior and judge of the world. The first is that the Holy Spirit enables us to confess the right Jesus. We got the right guy. We understand the right Savior. We know the only one heaven sent to be the Savior of the world. God didn't send 30 different Saviors and saying, you pick whichever one works for you. He sent one, and He is so gracious and good to send one. There doesn't have to be a one, but He did. He sent a Savior, and we've come to know Him as He was presented to us, as He was declared to us, as He was revealed to us by God Himself. We got the right one, and no credit's given to us. It's all a gift from the Holy Spirit that we understand the right Jesus, who He actually is and what He came to do. So the first reason for confidence for us is that we know the right Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that in verses 13 to 15. The Holy Spirit enables us to confess the right Jesus. So here's God's pattern. He sent His eternal Son. He sent the Son who's always been with Him in eternity past the Son whom He's always loved. He sent His Son to the earth to save people from all over the planet, all throughout human history. He sent His Son. And then, because people lie, misunderstand, are ignorant, He made a way for us to know the truth about His Son. He sent a group of men called the apostles, the sent ones. He sent the sent ones to declare this accurate teaching about Jesus Christ. And for the last 2,000 years, we take what the apostles taught, we understand it, and we realize we 
have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, and it's the right Jesus because the sent ones have told us the right message. And we get it, not just in our head, our hearts get Jesus. We know who He is. We know He came to forgive us, to save us. He's coming again to bring us home. We know Him rightly because the Holy Spirit has taken that message the apostles gave us, taken our hearts, and the Holy Spirit has united them to embrace Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit and His work of opening our eyes, shining light into our hearts, as 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says. Again, this is found in verses 13 to 15. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Here's how we know that God makes His home with us and we make our home with Him. Here's how we know. How do we know? He gave us His Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is reassures our hearts before God. It reminds our hearts that we are right with God. That's a gift that the Holy Spirit gives. So by this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And before we move on to verse 14, I want you to see the graciousness of God, the generosity of God in the very first words of our passage. By this, we know that we abide in Him. I mean, think back to the first pages of Scripture. God creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, and He makes His home with them. They rebel against Him, and they are removed from that home with God. But He promises that there will be a Redeemer one day that would come to make all things right. And so when Jesus comes, He's announced, among other things, as our Emmanuel, our God with us. Looking back on human history since the garden, that is astoundingly gracious. God makes His home again with us. We don't deserve that home, but He gives it. He makes His home again with us. And so, John now writes to children of God saying, I want you to know that you're at home with Him and He's at home with you. What generosity just in these first few words. By this we know that we abide with Him. God's good. He wants us to know that we're at home with Him. He doesn't want it to be a mystery like some other religions or some other, some other falsifications of the Christian religion. He doesn't want there to be any mystery. He wants you to know that you can be at home with Him. And if you're a Christian, that you are at home with Him. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, that we right there is not we, all of us. That's, Paul, that's John doing what he often does, using that we to refer to that apostolic group. He's done this throughout the letter. He did it in chapter 1. He's done it in chapter 4. He does it again here. We have seen and testified. Me, John. Him, Peter. Him, Paul. We've seen him. We know him. We've then testified about Him. We've announced accurately Him to you. We have seen and testified. The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. This is not the Father sent some random prophet, some random person. He sent His Son who's always been with Him. The Son who's of His essence. The Son who shares love with the Father. We are telling you as the ones God sent that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's what verse 14 is trying to articulate. And that fits. It fits the angelic announcement in Matthew 1.21. Name Him Jesus. Name Him Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. Name Him that because He'll save His people from their sins. And so that was the announcement to the parents of Jesus. That's now after Jesus has lived, died, rose again, ascended. This is now the announcement that his followers, his first followers, his first apostles gave to the world. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, so whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever confesses that Jesus is who the apostles have said he is, which is who God has 
made known to us. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him, and he dwells in God. So, so get the argument of John. We, John is saying as an apostle, we've been sent by God to make known this message that Jesus is the Son of God. The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, whoever believes that, whoever confesses that, says, that's what I believe. That's my confession. He's my Savior. He's from the Father. He's the only Savior for the world. That's what I believe. That's the one who abides in God and God abides in Him. And again, why does this all happen? Because He has given us of His Spirit. So you could say it this way. God sends His Son to be the Savior of the world. Then God sends His apostles to make this message known to the world. And when people in the world, including us, confess to that message, agree with that message, embrace that message, that is the Holy Spirit doing that work. So when judgment day comes, you can say, I am right with God because He has shown me the truth. He's shown me the way. He's shown me Jesus Christ. That's what John's trying to articulate. I want you to hear this from Matthew 16. This is a passage many of us have heard before, but I want you to hear it now in light of what John's telling us. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things that you'll see come up as a repeated theme is questions and mystery about Jesus. Who is this guy? Some say he claims to be the Savior of the world. Some say he's, he's making himself to be one with God. Hold on a second. I saw that kid grow up. I know his dad. I know his mom. All kinds of questions about who Jesus is. The Jewish leaders send the scribes, their lawyers, as if they will fix everything. Who are you? The Sadducees come and ask him questions about the resurrection. The Pharisees come and they're trying to piece it together. So many people come into contact with Jesus and so many have distorted views of him. He's not meeting all the expectations they had. They thought he'd come as a conquering king immediately, but he came first as a servant. That puzzles people. So you read through the Gospels and there's all these questions about who is Jesus? And so in Matthew 16, he's just been dealing with crowds. There have been different responses to him. He comes to Caesarea Philippi and he takes his private group of disciples and he asks, asks them the question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm curious, guys. What are you hearing? Peter says, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? That matters. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the anointed one. You're the son of the living God, which is what John in our passage is trying to show us. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See what's happening there? I bet Peter's dad, Jonah, taught him things about the Messiah. I bet Peter's dad taught him the Scriptures. And when Jesus gets the right confession, or when Peter gets the right confession, says the right things about Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you, you had a faithful dad. Blessed are you, flesh and blood, your dad didn't reveal this to you. Who revealed it to Peter? Jesus' Father in heaven. It wasn't his earthly father that revealed these truths to him. It was God, the heavenly Father, revealing these truths to his heart. Blessed are you, the Father has revealed these things to you. Now bring that all the way home to us. You believe not just in your head, but in your heart that Jesus is the King of the world, the Christ, the Anointed One.
He is the King. He is the eternal Son of God. Blessed are you. Your Sunday school teacher didn't teach you that. She might have taught that to your head, but there's only one that can teach that to your heart, your Father in heaven. Blessed are you from what your aunt taught you, from what your uncle taught you. They did teach you those facts, and they were called to do that. We're supposed to do that. But we can only teach the head. The Father is the one who teaches the heart, and the Father loves to do that. He not only sends His Son, but He does the work of making His Son known to our hearts. And so we can stand there on Judgment Day and say, it was His plan for me to know this right conquering king. I have confidence. I know. That's why Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'll never forget 2008, Palm Springs. My mom grew up around Christian things, going to church, going to youth groups, saying prayers, reading the Christmas story, singing Christmas music. When I became a Christian in my early 20s, I looked at my mom's life and I thought, something doesn't match up here. What God says to be true about Christians isn't matching up with my mom's life and the way she talks and thinks. And so Michelle and I were newly married and we'd been praying for my mom for her salvation. And so um, we invited her to come to a conference that our church was putting on in Palm Springs in 2008. And she came. And I'll never forget that night, a pastor opened up Mark chapter 15 and read the crucifixion narrative. The title of the message was The Cry from the Cross, Christ crying out in anguish and agony and why he did that. And that is the night my mom was converted. That message about Jesus and what he came to do gripped her heart. So when in our passage, 1 John, he says, the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Anyone who agrees with that message that we're proclaiming to you has a home with God because God's Spirit has made that known to Him. I can sit here and tell you, stand here and tell you that that kind of thing is still happening today. God's taking the message about His Son and His Holy Spirit is uniting it to people's hearts. And the astonishing thing in Mark 15 is that Jesus dies on a cross, and we talk about Jesus being the Savior of the world. A Roman centurion, not a Jew, a Roman centurion sees Him die in this way. It says, when He saw Him die in this way, He said, surely this is the Son of God. At that moment, Someone from the world, because Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, someone from the world saw Him die and say, surely He's the Son of God. His death opened His eyes. His death was glorious to this Roman centurion. And it's not as if that converting work only happened 2,000 years ago. It happened in 2008 in Palm Springs. It happened in your life, in my life. Some of you have become Christians since 2008. It's still happening. He's taking the message of His Son being the Savior of the world that we celebrate at this time of year, and His Holy Spirit unites that to our hearts so that we believe about the right Jesus. We understand the right Jesus, the right work that He came to do, and God unites our hearts to that truth. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is confidence on Judgment Day for all of God's children. Because God has united this truth to our hearts. We know it because God made it known to us. We don't stand there on Judgment Day and say, I was smarter than everyone. I got it. Come on. You're coming for me. No, no, no. You have made known to me this coming King. I'm His. 
because you've made him known to me. And that's why John wants our hearts to be at rest. It's a work of God, our salvation is. You may be here and you may not know much about Christianity or you, you know a little bit about Christianity or some things that I'm saying might prompt some questions in you. I would encourage you, I'd invite you to read the Gospel of John. We're reading the first letter of John. Go back and read his Gospel account, his message of Jesus coming to earth and what that all meant. I'd encourage you to read that. If you have questions about that, if you're trying to understand the right Jesus as God has revealed him to you, ask maybe someone who you know that is a Christian. You can call at the church office. You can come talk to me. We'd love for you to be introduced to the right Jesus, what the Scriptures say about Jesus, what the apostles say about Jesus, so that as you see Him for who He really is, the Holy Spirit would unite that truth to your heart, and you'd have confidence on Judgment Day that I'm His. I know Him. The call to a Christian from these verses, 13 to 15, take confidence in this, brother and sister. Your Lord wants you to know that you're at home. He doesn't want you worried about your standing with Him. If He's united this gospel truth to your heart, if He's given you the right message and your heart embraces that, take a deep breath. Take a sigh of relief. Look forward to Judgment Day, because on Judgment Day, He comes to save, finally, His people, to bring them home. Look forward to that. Rest assured. There's a second reason for confidence in our passage, second reason for confidence before the Savior and Judge of the world. It's this, verses 16 to 21, the Father enables us to love one another. When we love other people, other brothers and sisters, which is a theme all throughout this book, when we love others, we have confidence on Judgment Day because God has done that miracle in our hearts. We don't stand there on Judgment Day saying, all credit to me, I've changed my heart to be loving toward people. That's not, that's not the basis for our confidence. The basis for our confidence is, I've been reborn. I was born selfish. I've been reborn to love the people of God. That's why I know I'm right with the judge of the world because I've been remade. I'm different because of what he's done. And John tries to articulate this yet again in this letter. He's done it before. He's going to say it again. But before we get into that truth, he reminds us of this in verse 16. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So before we start getting into focusing on our love for others, which is a reason for assurance, let's just, let's just think first of His love coming to us. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. See, when a Christian loves other people, it's an outflowing of the love that they've been shown by God. And so the first thing a Christian does, the first thing in terms of loving a Christian does is, is they receive a love from God. They understand the love God has for them. That brings a, a love from them back to God. So there's this love He sends to us that we enjoy and appreciate. We have that love back for Him because He initiated it all. And then that love doesn't just stop with us. It continues out to our brothers and sisters. There's a lot of love happening when you become a Christian. I know God's love for me. I love Him. I love others. And so before we jump into the rest of verse 16 and then on the way down to 21, let's just think about this for a moment. We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Christian, think about the love that God has for you and think about that regularly. Please think about that daily. He loves his own. He, he's written one of 66 books here to make you assured that you stand in his love. You're right with him because of his love. Dwell on that. Think about that. See the goodness of God and his love for you in Christ Jesus. We know from places like Philippians 2 
that Christ came to earth, left the glories of heaven to come to earth as a slave, suffering, dying on a cross because of his love. We know because from the gospel of John, the father loved the world and sent his son to save those who would believe. So we know the scriptures have told us about God's love for us and even the distance leaving the glories of heaven to come and suffer. Why would Jesus come to suffer? Because he loves. Why would Jesus come to suffer? Because the Father loves and sent him. Think about that distance. Think about what it cost Jesus. Think about it. There's a pastor, many of you know, named Sinclair Ferguson, and he tells the story of a conversation he had with one of his adult sons. He was asking his son, what are your holiday plans? What are you going to do over the holidays? Are you going to come to be with us? And Sinclair Ferguson says that he was hoping that he'd say, yeah, I'll be home on this day. But his son, who he said doesn't organize anything, doesn't plan anything, said, I'm going to Australia. And Ferguson thought, okay, what are your friends planning? He said, no, I'm going alone. And Ferguson says, see, he had met a girl. He was a physician. He met this girl at some sort of Christian physician's meeting. They had got to know each other. And then she had to move to Australia to take care of her ailing mom. And so when the son told him, I'm going to Australia, I'm going alone, Ferguson says, he didn't need to tell me why. He'd met a girl. And he said to him, do you know how far Australia is? (laughs) And the young man was committed to going. And then Ferguson summarizes the account. And he says, the love demonstrated can be seen in the distance traveled. And that's a good sentence for which to think about our Lord. The love demonstrated can be seen by the distance traveled. He left the glories of heaven where he was only praised continually as the true and living God to come and suffer at the hands of people that he created and had been so generous to. He traveled that distance, born not in a sanitary hospital, but in a manger, identified with sufferers, experienced God's wrath for sinners in their place, went through all of that. The distance traveled says something about his love. And so when John says, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It's good on a morning like this, in a refreshingly new way, to know again and to believe the love that God has for us. Christian, God the Father loves you. He doesn't love what you might become one day. I'll do better. He loves you now. While you were still a sinner, He sent His Son to die for you. It's not just the Father that loves you, the Son loves you. Genesis 2.20. The Father and the Son, who've always loved one another, have shown their love to the world as the Father sent His Son because the Father loves and His Son went because the Son loves. The Father loves you, Christian. The Son loves you. Have confidence in that. Look forward to His return. But then that love of God doesn't just stay with us, does it? He changes us. Verse 16, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So right here, John continues the argument. He doesn't just say God loves you. He also has an expectation that the one who really lives with God, the one who really is God's child, they then love. And remember I told you last week where we first heard the the words, God is love. That, what that's getting at, what that means is that that is his essence. That is who he is. I told you last week, he can't help but love. God is love. It's not something he has. It is who he is. So when he sends his son to be merciful and to be a savior and to be gracious, it's no surprise because God is love. He's benevolent always. 
But, but notice why John tells us this. Notice why the words God is love is in 1 John and not in some other book. Because the argument is, because this is his essence, he can't help but love, therefore he's loved you. You who are his children, you now look like your father. Your new essence is to be loving. That's why he says God's love, because he's showing that now you as child, guess what you are now? You've been made to love. God is love, and whoever abides in God, lives with God, abides in love. So God is love. It's who he is. And if you're God's child, guess what? Guess who you are? You're loving. By this, love, by this is love perfected. And again, I told you last week, that word perfected might be a little little easy to misunderstand for us English readers. When we think perfect, we think 10 out of 10, bullseye. That's not this biblical word. Perfected, when you hear perfected, this biblical word, think of completed. There's an intent to this. There's a certain fruition that should come from this. There's a certain completion that should happen from God's love. That's the idea. By this is love completed with us. So God sent his love to us, and the intent of that love is for it to be completed to our brothers and sisters. That's what John's trying to show. By this is love completed, carried out with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Okay, so I'm just going phrase by phrase, trying to help you understand this, because it's so crucial. By this, love is carried out to fruition so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So this is saying one of the ways God wants you confident on the day of judgment is to see his love for you and then to see how he's made you loving to others, to see that full completion of God's love down to you, out to others, so that you can say on the day of judgment, I've been changed I know I'm right with this judge of the world because he's not only shown me love, he's made me loving. That's why that phrase there at the end of 17, because as he is, so also are we in the world. As he is. Have we been told anywhere recently who God is? Yes. God is love. So as he is love so also are we in this world. So God is love. He can't help but love. Guess then what we are in this world. Love. And that should give you confidence because you can't conjure that up by your own willpower. That has happened to you. You've been made to love. That's the line of argumentation John's trying to bring to us. I want you confident for the day of judgment because not only have you received God's love, but you've demonstrated God's love. He's done something to you. Be confident. Rest assured. And then we come to verse 18, one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. There is no fear in love, but completed love from God through us casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We often read that because we're we're such one-verse Christians. We take verses out, cut them out of our Bible, set them on a table, analyze them as they stand alone. Wrong way to read the Bible. We read that and we hear, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And we automatically say, that's talking about God's love for me. He has perfect love for me. Casts out any fear. Ah, careful. We've been reading through 1 John, and he wants us to be assured that the love we demonstrate for other people means something. Yes, it means that God has acted upon us, shown us love, but again, see the completion language. He's shown us love, and then that's now gone out, and we've loved others. That is a reason we don't need to fear. So it's not just God's love for us makes us not fear. It's God's love for us that continues to others, which gives us reason not to fear. He's done something in us. There is no fear in love, but completed love. 
from God to me, out to others, completed love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. For fears has not been perfected in love. If you aren't loving to your brothers and sisters in Christ, there should be fear. But the one who loves their brothers and sisters need not fear. You're a new creation. God's changed you. And the ones who are changed are the ones who will not need to fear on judgment day. Our receiving and passing on God's love gives us assurance. And again, that doesn't just come from this verse. It's come throughout the book. Chapter 3, verse 14 is one place. We know we have passed out of death into life. Why? How do you know that? Because we love the brothers. It doesn't say we know we've passed from death to life because God has loved us. That is true. But that love has been completed. It has its full effect. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. How do you know you're going to heaven? Because I love my brothers and sisters. Oh, makes it sound like you've earned your way to heaven. No, 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 no. God has done that to me. God has loved me and then made me loving. I get none of that credit. So that's not a statement of my own standing. (laughs) That's all God's grace. But it is an evidence that he's been gracious to me, that he's made me loving. So I'm not afraid of judgment day. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Now, now, again, in the context, we love him, but it's certainly also talking about our love for others, wouldn't it be? Because of what we've been seeing in the letter. We love him and we loved others because he first loved us. I don't love you because I'm awesome. I love you because God has changed me. I don't love you perfectly, but I do love you, and God has changed me to love you. That's what all Christians can say. I don't love perfectly, but I've been made to love, and I have seen that come out in my life. I love others and Him because He first loved me. The love that I have for God and others doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with you. It starts with Him. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. No such thing. There is not one person who will be with us in the new heavens and new earth that says, I love God, I just hate other people. I'll take it a step further. There's nobody who will be with us in the new heavens and new earth who says, I love God, I just don't like other Christians. No such person. God's love is this powerful. It doesn't just make sense to you and save you. It actually works its way out of you into love for other people. That's how powerful God's love is. So if someone doesn't have that love working out in them, they're lying about the fact that they love God. It doesn't make sense. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Nothing like a little Christian challenge, Christmas challenge there. So, brother or sister, please don't ever say anything like, or at least don't believe anything like, I love God, I just don't really love His people. Oh, then you don't love God. Not based on what I'm saying. Based on what His Holy Spirit is saying in this book. When we've been loved by God, we then rightly love him and rightly love others. His love has done something. It's powerful. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Paul just, or John just summarizes it at the end. Here's the command. He, he, and, and the beautiful thing about God's command to his children, we actually can obey those commands. So he's done this work. He's given you the power to love. And now this is the command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I want you to see this transforming work in Galatians. You can just listen, or if you'd like to, turn to Galatians 5. Paul here, writing to believers, and talks about the desires of the flesh that they were once ruled by. 
This is, this is just who they were. It's what, how they thought, how they lived. This was their pattern. The works of the flesh, Galatians 5.19, are evident. Sexual immorality carried out in real life or just in the mind. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. There are more. But here's a, here's a, here's a start. These are the deeds of the flesh. These are the deeds that characterize everybody who's not converted, everyone who's not been made like Christ, everyone who's not a Christ follower, not a Christian. These, these just characterize everyone. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, but when God sends His Spirit to change your heart, and when God sends His Spirit to live inside of you, and this is how we can all be encouraged this morning if you are in Christ, but the fruit of the Spirit is what's the first characteristic? Love. And in Paul's lists, his first characteristic is kind of an overarching one for the rest of the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So, so here's Paul saying what John's saying. If you are in the Spirit, if you've received the gift of the Spirit because you've repented, believed, made a confession of Jesus as Lord like Acts 2 would tell you to do, if you've believed in Jesus, embraced Him, repented of your sins, you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Well, the first thing it does is it makes you understand the truth about Jesus that's been revealed to you by the Father. That's one thing. The second thing is He changes you and He makes you loving. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. You don't do those things because the law tells you to. You do those things because the Spirit has made you to want to do them. He's changed you. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're a new people. We have new power. We have new abilities. No thanks to us, but thanks to the grace of our God. The Father enables us to love one another. All Christians love other Christians. Not because it's easy, but because they've been given power by God the Father. They've been reborn, remade. Is that always easy? No. Are we always easy to love? No. But Christians work at it. Remember, one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. They work at it. They reconcile. They strive to be the new them. So Christian, be assured at the second coming. God has made you to know the truth about His Son through the Holy Spirit, and God has changed you to be loving. Don't fear the second coming. Long for the second coming. If you are here and you are afraid of the second coming, you're not sure that you are right with God, you don't, you know, this love that you talk about, this doesn't just spring out of me. I don't think my heart's been made to be long-suffering with other people. I don't think my heart loves being patient with other people, especially Christians. I don't know that that's happened. What do I do? Well, don't try to be loving. Don't do that. Because trying to be loving from a heart of stone doesn't work. Trying to plant a flower on cement doesn't work. You need someone to rip out that cement and put soil in. Rip out that heart of stone and put a new heart in. So what do you do? That's a great question. That's the eternal question. That's why Acts chapter 2, when people hear the message of Jesus, they call out to the apostles, what do we do? We know we're guilty. And Peter says, repent. Admit 
your sin. Admit that you're not loving. Admit that you've got a heart of stone. And then once you've done that, be baptized, which is shorthand for saying, make a confession that Jesus is your Lord. Demonstrate that to those around you. Repent of your sin. In doing that, you're trusting in Jesus. You make a confession that he is my Lord. And then guess what Peter says? And the gift of the Holy Spirit will be given to you. So what do you do? Don't try to be more loving. Admit that you're not. Trust in Jesus. Confess him as Lord. And watch him change you. Watch him make you more loving. Christian, be assured. The second coming, you don't need to cower in fear, but can stand up straight and say, I'm his and he's mine. I abide in him, he abides in me. You know, we sing a lot of songs at Christmas. We sing a lot of songs about the first coming, appropriately so, wonderful lyrics. Things like, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Wonderful lyrics. We sing, come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. I've been thinking about second coming lyrics this week in light of our passage. Really had the thought come through my mind a number of times this week. What will I say in that moment? If I'm alive at his coming or if I'm in the grave and come out of the grave at his coming, whenever it happens when I first see him, what will I say? What will I do? I don't know. Kind of looking forward to seeing what comes out. But I would not be surprised if it was something like, you've saved me and you've changed me. My confidence is not in my abilities, my morality, my anything, my job title. It is not in any of that. My confidence is what God has done for me. And based on our passage, we can all say, maybe this comes out of our mouth, you've saved us. Father, you've introduced this one to us. Holy Spirit, you've made me embrace him. You've saved me. And you've changed me. The only reason I can love like you is because you've done that in me. I want you, this church, Christians, to be eager for the second coming, not cowering in fear because of what God's done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to be the savior of the world. And thank you. Thank you for communicating in your word the assurances that we can have. You want us at rest knowing that we are right with you. Father, give us that gift this Christmas. Hearts at rest knowing that you've saved us and you've changed us. We know we're not perfect, but you consider us to be so in your Son, and you are continually changing us even as we speak. So, Father, be glorified, be honored, and we pray, Jesus Christ, that you would come soon. We pray this in your name. Amen.